0: Hi friends, welcome back. My guest today is Fiona Murden, executive coach, psychologist, and author. You might have heard that old wives tale your mum told you or you've seen on the internet about you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with, but just how true is that? We might think that we're sovereign beings with independent will and agency, but the examples set by those around you are constantly shaping your behavior. So today we get to find out just by how much. How important is your teacher in primary school? What impact your parents' beliefs have on you by the time that you've reached adulthood? How useful are bad actors at identifying behavior that you should avoid? And how can we use role models to actually expedite our progress? There's some pretty big implications here, especially if you're someone who has children or is looking to have children in the near future, you really should be taking a lot of notice of what Fiona says today. In other news, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who are the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels, and they have just launched in the UK, which means that you are finally able to get your hands on the Lawn Mower 3.0, the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created, which features cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents, a 90-minute battery so you can take a longer shave, waterproof technology that actually allows you to groom in the shower, and an LED light which sounds bizarre but is really, really useful. All of the guys that are listening, you know the embarrassment and fear and anxiety that builds up in the, the days preceding your inevitable gentleman's area trim. And, and it, you just it, it just reduces the amount of fear that you have to have. You're not so worried about nicking that... That weird section of your body that is in between balls and bumhole, which is, is terrifying. It's the single most vulnerable part of your body, and you don't want to be fearing accidents. Thankfully, you don't have to. So you can finally put away the old shaver, which has been pushed down the hierarchy from something that you got for Christmas about seven years ago, used on your face for a while, and now it's your chest and ball hair trimmer, and you can get something which is built for the job, all right? Head to manscaped.com and enter the code modernwisdom for 20% off anything that you buy plus free shipping. That's manscaped.com, code modernwisdom at checkout for 20% off and free shipping on whatever you buy. Put the old shaver away and give your body a little bit of love. But for now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Fiona Murden. What is the mirror system?
1: A mirror system is a collection of neurons in the brain, which enable us to observe what other people are doing without actually carrying out that action ourselves. And how that functions is to enable us to learn, basically, because for thousands and thousands of years, before we had the written word, the only way we could learn was through observing and actually, through storytelling as well, which interestingly is also dependent in part on the, neuro, the mirror
0: neuron. That's interesting. So, how does it work? How do I? I watch you doing a thing. You're whittling a stick, or I don't know what I've, our ancestors would be doing, hunting a deer. How does it work?
1: So, it's, it's easiest to go back to where, how it was discovered because it was discovered in Parma by um, uh, some Italian psychophysiologists or i've got the name wrong there but they were basic they were looking at how monkeys grasp and they had electrodes in this is a bit mean into the brains of the monkeys and one day they were eating their lunch and they noticed that the monkeys were doing the grasping on in terms of what electrical output was coming off but they weren't actually moving and so they realised that the same part of the brain was functioning when the monkeys were watching as when the monkeys were actually doing it themselves. And so if you think about it, if you think about a baby, for example, watching a mother or a, a mum or dad eating, they they might be watching them when they're not eating themselves. But each time they're watching, they're rehearsing it through in their brain, which helps to build up that capability of how to
0: actually do that ourselves and this is just automated
1: yeah I mean it's complex it's so some people actually argue against the mirror neuron but that's going down a really geeky path <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> we love we love a, we love a geeky path
1: oh no it's very very geeky um, from there's there's still you know, within the brain of humans we can't generally do single neuron analysis so that analysis that was being carried out on monkeys was single neuron Um, within the brain of humans we use something called fMRI which is functional magnetic resolution imaging and it gives us an idea of what's going on the brain through blood flow but can't help us get down to that individual level and there have been some um, experiments where people have been having surgery for epilepsy and they've given consent for their brains to be looked at but what some scientists will say we haven't gathered enough data to be able to say this is definitely how it happens or this isn't how it happens.
0: Is it just because in order to be able to do that single neuron al- analysis, you've got a Trepan part of the brain or whatever and then get a neuron? Is that So it's literally like an ethical question? Yeah. Oh, interesting. I thought it might have been due to like density or complexity or the number of neurons that we have or something like that.
1: So I'm not a neuroscientist. I would probably put it to both points but I think the the major point is that we, we can't go around Drilling cutting holes in open people's heads. people's
0: heads if you um, want if you want to have a hole drilled in your head comment below and Fiona will put you in touch with someone who wants to drill a hole in your head yeah That'd
1: I know be... lots of people who would want to do it I just
0: yeah, whether or not <laughs> the board doing of doing Ethics it would let it would let it pass yeah exactly so the advantage that the mirror neuron gave our ancestors was expediting learning was that it
1: yeah I mean it was it was how civilization progressed to where it is today. So before a written word, it was the only way there was a progression of of learning. so uh, one one guy calls it uh, collective learning. He talks about the big history and collective learning. so every generation builds on the learning from the generation before and it gradually evolves how we learn and what we know. But before we could write things down, that was the only way that we could evolve from sort of just sitting with our stick whittling yeah. to actually building a hut or or sort of creating fire or all that sort of stuff.
0: I guess it's more scalable and less open to linguistic restrictions and or interpretation of someone trying to vocalise the thing that they're doing. Like if I can hunt a deer, you can watch me hunt a deer and take the cues of me hunting a deer I might not actually be able to explain what it is that I do. Exactly. We might not have sufficiently sophisticated language. You might not be able to hear the same that I speak, that blah, blah, blah.
1: Exactly. And it's so the, the example I give is if you um, look at how someone throws the ball up to serve in tennis. So if I was to explain that, so in, the, in the book I've basically taken it down to various different steps. You read that through, if you've never played tennis and you've never seen anyone serve, you would think, what on earth am I supposed to do? Because it's just, it looks impossible. And it kind of makes you realise that even now we have to see things to be able to do them because that's the way our brain's evolved. Yes, instruction helps, of course it does, but we still fundamentally rely on that, being able to see.
0: That's so interesting because if you were to think about – Any complex physical movement, dancing, martial arts, um, you never, even if you pay for a course online, it's never an instructor in front of you simply saying what you do. He's demonstrating along with it, right? So the vocalizing, the linguistics, wrap additional information around perhaps the feel of the muscles that you're activating. So it's the stuff that you can't see, but the vast majority of the cues are coming from things that you can see.
1: Absolutely,
0: yeah. Uh, I remember in Atomic Habits by James Clear, he says that we've got 14 million sense sensing um, cells in our body, and 11 million of them are to sight, dedicated to sight, and only three yeah. million to the remaining four senses.
1: It's really interesting. But actually, on that point, mirror neurons are thought to be associated with auditory as well as visual. Okay, um, that's interesting and And, um there's so I mean, a good example of it is actually when they, you come to storytelling, so if you if you tell so there are experiments that have been done where you, that you've got someone tasting a certain taste and you describe the taste, so this is linguistics, mm. and you explain how um, something sounds, something smells. And it's, if you think about uh, Martin Luther King, so on the, I'll get it wrong, the quote, you know, if, if you think about the, the red hills of Georgia in the sweltering heat, and uh, apologies to any Martin Luther King
0: <laughs> I am is, a fan, cool. but yeah, I'm not yeah, yeah. very good
1: at remembering things. Yeah. It's, it bring those metaphors, enable us to create the image in our own head. And when, when um, neuroscientists look at uh, people listening to a story, it will activate the same areas of their brain as what is being described in that story.
0: That's cool. Uh, does it start imprinting from birth? We start imprinting before birth. Can we imprint when we're still in the womb?
1: I mean, there's that, that's another geeky one because
0: <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just so you remember you said about tennis. I'm just throwing up a bunch of balls that you want to <laughs> you want to hit because you want to go down the rabbit hole. I'm, miss,
1: I'm missing them all. Okay. Um, there's, there's something called epigenetics, which is where our genes are actually turned on and off themselves by the chemicals um, that they're sort of soaked in so epigenetics will influence that there's some i so there's a lady called celia hayes who's at oxford university and she believes that the mirror neuron begins developing once we're born but very very quickly so it's sort of it it potentially might have formed in some sort of way before we're born, but it's when we're born that it starts developing.
0: Not imprinted before that. Yeah. So is there a period – I don't know whether this is possible, again, with the uh, ethical questions that we've got (laughs) around brain imaging. Is there a period in which the most imprinting is done?
1: I don't know the exact answer to that, but obviously kids are very susceptible to stuff. But kids will – mirror their parents predominantly until they're about 12 13 and then it becomes peers teachers all those sorts of people as well but still predominantly actually for all of us it's our parents but teenagers um their brain is wired to be social because that's how again in evolutionary terms that's how teenagers operated they were going to reproduce so they had to be social had to meet people and so they're very Um, their brain's quite malleable to what's going on around them and they need that information being fed to them. But the brain continues to develop until we're in our sort of mid to late 20s, something called emerging adulthood. So we used to think it stopped, um, but it doesn't. And then even when we're adults, it's still, again, something I'm sure you've heard is the term plastic. So our brain, we used to think, especially psychologists, that our brain, our personality, everything was fixed. Once we hit a certain age, but we're learning more and more. It's
0: not. You said about parents being the key determinant. There, I'm going to guess that a parent's accent is a key uh, example that everyone can understand. Is that is that mirroring the fact that if you're Irish you, and your parents sound Irish, you've got a bit of an Irish twang?
1: Well, it, I mean, it's a cultural it's a cultural norm, so you're picking up the values, but you're also picking up what's around you. And I find that really interesting because um, my daughter's got a friend who we live in southeast of England, and she's got a friend whose mum's from Manchester. And I, we've known them since she was three, so she's 13 now, nearly 14, and she speaks with a, a Mancunian accent. No way. <laughs> yeah, and so, and so that's clearly the influence of her mum. It's not her mum saying, you need to talk like me. But there'll be that influence there that she's picking it up from her mum rather than the people that are around her in her environment.
0: Well, that's surely that is a controlled variable. Here is where it's imprinting from. Like, unless there's someone that's from Manchester sneaking into her bedroom at night and whispering, whispering. <laughs> it's, or,
1: her it's her mum. It's her mum, surely. You will talk like me. You will talk yeah. like <laughs>
0: Yeah, that would be funny. Or just Liam Gallagher's rogue at night whispering in <laughs> small children's ears. Uh, so what happens if I grew up with sheep? If I was born and left and I went down the stream in a w- wicker basket, like some biblical myth, and I wake well, up and I'm surrounded by sheep?
1: This is another thing. It's, this is ethical thing again, isn't it? We can't take kids away from the parents. But there's an example I love. I don't, I don't know if you've heard it, but there's a girl called Oksana Malaya who um, was born in the Ukraine uh, in a really rundown village and her parents were alcoholics. And one night they left her out in the cold. They just left her outside. This is how the story goes. And looking for warmth, she curled up with feral dogs. And she, she was three years old at this time and she lived with the dogs for the next five years until someone reported it to the authorities. But she couldn't talk. She walked on all fours. She drank like a dog um she barked so when I say drank like a dog there's video of her and she sort of licks as the tap drips you know she's licking and I mean she's one example and you know with science you'll say you need you need thousands of examples to be able to say this is actually what's happening but to me it's such a clear example of what happens if you don't have people around you you don't know how to talk because no one's talking to you you don't know how to drink or eat or walk. So, although we're sort of like you know, you might say, "Well, why didn't she learn to walk upright anyway?" Because everything, everyone around her was walking on all fours.
0: That example so mind blowing. It's it's one of these things. This is why I can't wait. Well, if we're living in a simulation, it doesn't matter. There's no ethics anyway. But this is why <laughs> I can't wait until we can properly properly do simulations of consciousness. Because all these questions will just be answered. Right, okay, let's create a universe in which you live with sheep or you live with this or you live with that. And it's oh, my God, look at that. The, the bleeding and trying to grow wool and, and, <laughs> and jumping, jumping over fences when people can't get to sleep and uh, everything. Um, so can we choose not to imitate other people when we're young? Do we have enough agency below the age of whatever, 13? Can I choose to not be like my parents or is it kind of – is there a glass bottom to that?
1: Again, I don't know the hard answer. These are good quest- Answers aren't <laughs> question dr- good questions.
0: Dr- dr- drilling away this evening, trying to find the real point—that's what we're here for.
1: So, um, what, what is what's called counter mirroring, and if you think about it in you, th- you think about it in your own life, there'll be times where you've seen someone doing something, and you can imagine this in a playground. So, you can imagine a kid in the playground smacking another kid round the head. And and you look at it and you think, do you know what? I know that he got that football back from that guy, but I, he got in a whole load of trouble from the, the teachers about that. And and that there's a decision point because it's conscious. As soon as it becomes conscious, it's something you can make a decision on. And there must, be, I mean, there must be times where we unconsciously make a decision on not imitating. But a lot of the time, to make it. To, to not imitate, we have to stop and actually pause and think, hang on a minute. Do I really want to behave like that or do I want to behave like that? And you find that in business, because I profile a lot of senior executives and I go through their life from um, sort of teenage years up to where they're at. And it'll be I had this awful boss and I decided there and then I was never going to lead like that. And that's a prime example of counter mirroring. It's saying, I had that boss. I didn't like what I saw. And so I decided I'm never going to do that.
0: I'm going to guess as well, there'll be a lot of people who might have the, um, the father who uh, drank a bit much, so decides that they're going to control their drinking, but perhaps only after beginning to move down that path as a young adult and then almost using latent mirroring or latent yeah. counter mirroring as like here is something I did see in the past this is something that I know that I should avoid in the future
1: yeah and I know people like that actually who've had alcoholic parents and who've, who've made that decision I don't want to be like that they've they may be slipped they've started slipping and and realized actually well um you know Joey over there he can drink 10 pints and he just has an awful hangover when i do it i want to do it again and again and again um so there's that recognition whereas joey might end up an alcoholic
0: have you read robert plowman's blueprint no oh i need to get you on this if you are if you have space in the reading uh put it
1: on my list
0: so he is a i'm gonna get this wrong behavioral geneticist oh cool um and basically he's the leading twin studies, adoption studies, um, guy on the planet, and his most recent book, Blueprint, is phenomenal. Um, basically, the, the synopsis, the golden rule of behavioral genetics is that everything, every psychological trait that we have has a significant genetic uh, factor contributing to it, and that 50% of everything you are is because of your parents fifty percent of everything across the board. And one of the main things that he looked at, one of the key things, uh, uh, key areas that he looked at was alcoholism and addiction. And mm. alcoholism and addiction correlates it's in it's like 0. 0.8 or like 0. 0.7. It is insane. So what I've been I'm a big fan of a meritocracy, right? As a lot of I guess young sort of entrepreneurial type people, like I'll, you know, make it on my own, all this stuff. Um and upon finding out about just how uh, sort of deterministic our genes are, and then reading Mirror Thinking, your book, and realizing that a lot of the stuff that we do has been imprinted on us, it's almost like a like a one-two from our parents and the environment that we grow up in. Right, you're given this particular n- uh, nature that is then probably backed up in part by the nurture.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's where I think it's so powerful because you know, on one hand people say, Oh, you know, we're well, role modelling or observing, it's really obvious. Um, and you think, well, it is obvious, but that doesn't mean that we take conscious control of it or that we use it to help society. So I mean, my my bugbear, my bugbear is that um commercial organizations use an Understanding of our sort of limbic system basically to hook us onto social media.
0: Have you watched? I'm gonna guess you'll have seen the most recent Tristan Harris documentary on Oh, uh, yeah,
1: I had a few issues with some of that, but yeah, oh, just because just from the no, just from things like when they talked about psychometrics, and I'm like, that's not psychometrics, and but
0: but <laughs> <laughs> it must be a curse to have expertise in a particular I to area watching it to be oh wow See, so is... I think
1: I think he's brilliant I love him and I follow him and I love that he's got such an extreme view um but when I was actually watching this I was thinking I can't believe that a psychiatrist from Stanford is saying this and she, what she said was completely correct but then it was taken out of context within was, the rest
0: is that Susanna Zupov which one I can't is remember the... her surname is the one with a huge neck with huge hair
1: Don't think so, no. She had her two kids on it. I had to stop watching it because I was getting too annoyed.
0: I do remember the person who had her two kids on it. It wasn't the lady that I was thinking about. Um, But, yeah, I always think about that. I have a friend who's a doctor. And when you have specialist knowledge, you're just cursed with – seeing like, i can just enjoy it in ignorance and believe that it's all true whereas you're it's like, just
1: winding me up yeah. i was just going i i say all due respect to these guys they created some really interesting technology they did hook people that was their intention but they don't have a deep understanding of psychology and you don't need to have a deep understanding of psychology but that's also what's so scary about it mm. it's like these commercial organizations are taking over but that's like the the most primitive part of our brain and then the more advanced part of our brain where we have meaning, purpose, we give back to society. That bit needs nurturing, empathy through through mirroring and through making a conscious decision of what we're going to absorb and how we're going to absorb it. And then I also think it's, you know, you're saying about deterministic and you think about these kids that are born into really underprivileged environments. And Unless we step in and we say, because let's let's help them, let's give them positive role models, let's enable them to fulfill their potential. How do they? Unless they're one particular person that's gone down a certain route who's stubborn or whatever. But there's there's a guy, um, I'm getting excited now, but there's a guy that did a little video clip for me at the beginning of this, um, beginning of launching the book, and he's called Junior Smart. And he went to prison for 10 years and he describes his role models to me on this video it's only like three minute video and basically he said when he was in prison he decided I'm not going to do this anymore I'm not going to be involved in gangs and all that sort of stuff and then I kind of analyzed it as a psychologist and of course I don't know the exact answer but I would hypothesize if you look at it it's because he had a great mum who really cared about him. He had a great sister who really cared about him, and he had a few people in his life. So whilst he got pulled into doing, to, you know, doing crime, gang, and being violent, he now, he now works with kids to stop them getting involved in the same thing.
0: That's really cool. I had a Chris Daw QC, Queen's Counsel lawyer, one of the best-known criminal law advocates in the UK. I had him on for his most recent book, uh, Justice on Trial, uh, and he's advocating close all prisons, legalized drugs, full works as a QC. Really? Um, and one of his main reasons for it is the recidivision rate. Just the the sheer, he calls prisons universities of crime. Yeah. And he says Makes that you sense. go in and you've just surrounded by this. So to have a, a person who Brilliant. peels off and is the exception to that rule is is really, really cool.
1: I might get in contact with him. I totally agree because basically you're mirroring, you're mirroring the environment you're in unless you make a conscious decision not
0: to. What are some of the most important factors that are influenced by our parents?
1: Our values. So our values remain influenced by our parents throughout life. No unless, unless we make a conscious decision to change them, which we generally don't unless we have some sort of major life event. That's interesting. So even teenagers whilst they're being influenced by their peers, still look to their parents in terms of values.
0: What sort of values?
1: So <laughs> the type of stuff that under... In some communities, you'd put under religion. Um, if you're agnostic, atheist, whatever, you would. it's about being good to other people. It's about whether you give money to charity. It's about having a good work ethic. Um, it's about how you treat other people, how you, how you contribute to society, all those sorts of things, which really, again, sort of relate to the advanced thinking brain when it comes to being human.
0: What's stuff like the value of money and or materialistic desires, um, how you show love to other people, how you show appreciation to other people if you come from a materialistic household, is that the sort of thing that could be imprinted? Mm-hmm. I've, got yeah, this, def- I've had a theory for a while that we all have a materialism set point um, in life. Everyone like knows the person, kind of like the hedonic set point, right? Um, uh, everyone knows the friend from school whose parents were always keeping up with the Joneses, had like real extravagant birthdays. Dad always had a new car on PPC or whatever it is. And um, then you know the other people who perhaps aren't like that. And my argument during all of the financial conversations that I've had on the show has been, if you know that you come from family a keeping up with the Joneses, you better hope that you get a good job and you better hope that you Mm -hmm. are earning a lot of money because unless you can deprogram the connection between your sense of self-worth and the amount of materialistic success that you've got, you are always going to feel kind of a little bit tarnished. um, And I'm yet to see someone for whom that isn't true, unless, and this is something I'm fascinated by, you keep on talking about it, us stepping into our own programming. And that, for me, is the most interesting part of life.
1: So I'm guessing you've heard of, read Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Multiple times. So if you, yeah, so, if, I mean, I think everyone quotes him that name, but if if you look at Victor Frankl when he looked at the, the um, when he was in Auschwitz, was he in Auschwitz? He was in one of the concentration
0: camps. I can never he says, remember No,
1: oh, thank you. Um, the people that survived were the people that had the most meaning. And then there's um, a guy called Todd Kashtan, who's um, a psychologist, an American psychologist. He looks at curiosity and purpose and meaning and well-being. And him and his colleagues have got loads and loads of research to say that if you have a sense of purpose and meaning, you are happier as opposed to the hedonistic type games that you might get through money. But what I found really interesting is because I've worked with a lot with senior leaders and some of them are in, you know, they bucket loads of money and it's never really appealed to me. But then I look at my background and it's never been a high priority for my parents. So to your point, but there's one guy who I absolutely love who's CEO of a really cool company And we talk a lot about this sort of stuff because we sort of get geeked out. And um, he talks about his friends. And there's one friend in particular who was just driven to earn millions and millions. And he did. And he was miserable. And, you know, it's the classic story. He then said, well, actually, now I think I'm going to go and work with that charity. And suddenly this guy is so much happier than he's ever been. And that's because he suddenly he's got a sense of purpose rather than chasing something hedonistic, which is a short-term goal.
0: Couple of things. Firstly, Roy Baumeister wrote yes. a wonderful purpose and meaning article. Have you read it?
1: Yes, so, I mean, Roy, yeah, he's one of my. I think I've referenced him either in my first book or my second book.
0: Yeah. Um, so that is wonderful. Anyone that's listening, just search Roy Baumeister, purpose and meaning. Uh, And he kind of distinguishes what purpose is, what meaning is, how it contributes to our lives. Second thing is my friend, my good friend, who's coming on the show in a couple of weeks, Morgan Housel. Do you know who he is? So he's just written a book which comes out in two weeks, and it's lying on the floor there because I haven't finished it. Sorry, Morgan. Um, And it's called (laughs) The Psychology of Money, Um, Timeless Lessons in Wealth, Greed, and Happiness. And it is... Awesome. Only 200 pages, real short. He's, he's a, a blogger kind of by trade, so it's written in 20 blog blogs, oh, cool. kind of. Um, wonderful. And in that, he's, he had this quote on, on an episode that he did with me, which just totally nailed it. And he said, um, wealth is the Ferrari that you didn't buy. It's the square footage in the house that you didn't purchase. And that very much talks about the differential between what do you earn, what do you spend, what do you need to be happy, and what do you have available. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's weird there's not many things that have an objective measure you know I, I can't see objectively how happy you are i can't see objectively how fulfilled meaning purpose all that sort of stuff but i can see how much you spend and how much you earn and those are two sort of fairly good objective metrics that kind of mm-hmm. trickle back down right yeah i feel, I love it i love it that's so, really
1: that's, that sounds brilliant
0: you'll really really enjoy the book um what are friends for what are friends for? What are friends for? In the term, in in the the purpose of the the mirror system, what are they for?
1: Um, well, there's an interesting piece of research, and I use this carefully because a magazine approached me and asked me to write an article, "How to Think Yourself Thin," and I was like, "No, no, 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 that is wrong on so many levels. I'm not going there." So suddenly, this piece of research, I was slightly more cautious about sharing, but I'll share it now, and it's a um, piece of research carried out in 2010 sorry wrong piece of research 2007 twelve thousand participants over the course of 30 years looked at how much weight people gained and looked at how people around them in terms of not physically around them but in terms of the proximity of their friendship if you like so how close they were um how much weight they gained and if someone close to you gains weight you're you're dramatically more likely to gain weight and if it's a close friend it's a 171 percent chance that you will put on weight
0: how does that work so basically it's how, how can you have more than a hundred percent correlation
1: well it's not a correlation is it it's an increase
0: oh okay yes 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 yes
1: yeah so um but i just say it's it's bananas because what it demonstrates is how we sort of we just absorb things by osmosis. It's we're absorbing what our friends are doing. Um, we absorb moods. We absorb stress. There's loads of research that shows, you know, even if a teacher goes into a classroom stressed, the pupils become more stressed.
0: Their cortisol levels rise.
1: We're just so interconnected. It's just bananas. Bananas.
0: <laughs> so I'm looking here at the. Uh, research from Robert Plowman's blueprint, how DNA makes us who we are. So oh, yeah. this is average ratings of 5,000 UK adults. And it's the results of genetic research. And weight is, weight, people thought that the genetic component to weight was 40%. So that was what most people estimated, it's 07 you are 0. 0.7. percent No, it's 0. 0.7 of one. So it's 70%. You are 70% likely to have the BMI, or 70% is a correlation, your parents' BMI to yours. And he's done this with twin studies, adoption studies, people that are away. And is that
1: a genetic correlation, or is it genetic. that he's saying it's environmental genetic. genetic
0: correlation? So you can take twins that are born to the same parents, uh, either mono or bi- uh, whatever it is, dizygotic or monozygotic, either of them. And you can take them and put them in different households, their correlation to their adoption parents is zero. Zero.
1: It's really interesting.
0: I, I would love to hear what you think about the, his book because obviously oh, I'm going to read it. I don't have the the uh, wherewithal to be able to criticise it, but um, I would be really interested to see how that how that sort of ties into what we're talking about here.
1: I'm not sure I do either because I'm definitely not. What did you say he was? Uh, Robert
0: Plomin. He's a, a genetic, a behavioural geneticist.
1: Um, I'm just the behavioural bit, not the genetics <laughs> bit.
0: <laughs> yeah, I get it. Um, so we've got what friends are for. They they, they can sort of also mould our uh, our actions. So if that's the case, if it's both good and bad, is social conformity just part of trying to fit into the tribe? Is it just trying yeah. to feel part of the group?
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think this thing, this sort of thing's been discussed quite a lot over the last few years. I did discuss it in my first book that wasn't published before everyone was talking about it, but I won't go there. Get it back out. Um, get it get, get it back out again. It's a bit yeah. weird now, I think. Um Anyway, I might do. I might do. Um, but yeah, the social conformity It's and, and that you'll have you'll have heard the research that says we all think we're not really conformists. But then if, if you go <laughs> you do certain experiments and we all demonstrate that we do actually all conform to, to norms. So we'll do things like adjust our music taste. In, in experiments, they've shown how someone will align their music tastes to the people they're around without even realising they're doing it. People will align their um, how whether they think someone's attractive or not. All sorts of things just happen without us really consciously thinking about it, um, unless you're really stubborn like me, where I deliberately, as a teenager, wanted to wear something different always to what everyone else was wearing. But that was just all a bit, it's hard work being like that, to be honest. (laughs) It's
0: right, isn't it? Well, it's far easier to use the mirror system. Yeah. Because it does a ton of the thinking for you.
1: Absolutely. But that's where, so we've got commercial organizations leveraging our psychology for one thing, or behavioral science. I think we should be, as society, as individuals, leveraging our natural mechanisms, which mirrors thinking is in effect, for good. And that's for good for ourselves and for other people.
0: This sudden implication for something I've been talking about a lot recently, which is I get I was on Love Island. I was on the first uh, season oh, of Love you? Island. I was the first person oh, through d- the door.
1: You didn't see I've written on Love Island. I criticized it on Digital Spy. I didn't know you were on that. No, Sorry, I'm being I naive. Did.
0: It's absolutely fine. Uh, I'm going to go and check out, now your, you know. I'm <laughs> go check out your article and I'm going to tweet you something nasty if it was about me. No, um, it wasn't about you. My issue with Love Island that everyone that's listening knows um, is that it picks up people who very well might be talented or not, but doesn't choose them for their talents. Uh, Tommy Fury was this great boxer, wonderful amateur boxer just about to turn pro, but he got famous off the back of being a guy with a tan on TV. And what it does is it then gives people who haven't earned it a platform. And the sad thing about giving people who haven't earned it a platform is that now two million people listen to the person who won Love Island 2016 and think that they, by virtue of the size of this platform, should be able to comment on stuff like the general election or don't even
1: get me on this. This is just a rabbit hole for me. So I'm not criticizing you. I'm not criticizing you at all. I think that I mean I think one of the one of the issues with Love Island is. I think you take people that are vulnerable in one way or another as well, and then you put them in a situation that makes them even more vulnerable, and then they don't have the support afterwards. That was one of the things. I was only interviewed for this Digital Spy article. That's one of the things I was talking about, is I think it makes it increases the vulnerability and the pressures and all those things, so there's that piece. But then I also think it creates a hugely unrealistic norm for the rest of the population, because they're looking at these people sort of scantily clad, young, uh, tanned, And they're thinking, that's what I should look like. Now, that might not be something they consciously think, although often I think youngsters do. But it's something that then, if you talk about imprinting, creates a norm. And that norm is an unrealistic expectation. Um, And then the final thing is what you've just said is the platform, which drives me potty. Because, I mean, it's partly personal because I think you know, I trotted along quite successfully in my career, doing stuff with really important people (laughs) and being taken very seriously and being listened to. And then suddenly I launch a book and I'm told to go on social media. And firstly, I don't really like social media. But secondly, I just spent every day feeling like a failure because I think, why is no one listening to me? Because, you know, studied for seven years to become a child psychologist <laughs> but but no one's listening to me <laughs> and it's and so that's my personal bugbear but in reality you know it taking a sort of a step back and looking at it it does worry me because you have people who advise on mental health who whilst they might have experienced something and it's great to share a story whatever your story you can't advise unless you're trained you shouldn't You shouldn't be. So
0: this is a really hilarious paradox that we've stumbled across, which is the only people on the internet qualified to give advice are the people prohibited by law at giving that advice. (laughs) So we have a doctor who's one of my best mates and is always on the show, Yusuf. And he always prefaces anything he says on the show with, I am not your doctor, please speak to your GP, but this is what I think or just doesn't say anything, whereas some guy who has read a book about the carnivore diet or the veganism or watched the Game Changers movie can tell you everything that he thinks about how enzymes and protease and all this sort of stuff works because precisely because of the fact that he's unqualified and doesn't have anything to lose. As Yusuf says, um, what board are they going to be struck off from? Yeah. like there's no there's no sort of winning board for that to happen but i uh well, i think we both could sort of tumble down this this love island rabbit hole for a while but i certainly have i have faith um increasingly in social media's ability to select for people that are adding value i think we're seeing this with instagram removing the like counter i think that we're seeing this increasingly with people turning away from the flashy uh influencer Pro influencer Instagram lifestyle that we've seen maybe for sort of 2014 to 2019, 2020. I think we're starting to see that just look a bit tarnished. It's just a bit beggy now when you see people, they're in Mykonos, everyone's in fucking Mykonos all the time. <laughs> like, how, what, what, why is everyone, they're in Bali, they're in wherever it might be. And I think it's you seeing um, as an influencer, someone who works with, with companies sponsored for the podcast, sponsored for other bits and pieces as well, they're now looking, to pivot more and more away from asking me to do stuff on Instagram and instead asking to sponsor pre-rolls on the show. They would much sooner be associated with something which has a bit more reach but pay a ton more for it because they know that the platform has been uh, created through hard work and virtue and intellectual interest and curiosity and genuinely connecting with an audience, as opposed to this bizarre situation where you can go from nobody to two million followers in six weeks when you haven't interacted with a single member of the people that follow you, other than uh, passively through a camera. Um, So I think my form is temporary, class is permanent. And I think if you keep continuing to put out good stuff, um, you get what you deserve in the end. So I'm I'm sure that that'll happen for you as well.
1: I mean, aside from that doesn't matter. My aim, I, I guess I get frustrated because my aim is I've worked with all these privileged people um, helping them understand psychology and what have you. And I've thought, I want to give it to everyone else. And then everyone else isn't there to give it to. So like, um, but uh, to your point, I, do, I mean, I do I, I do have I hope, hope rather than I have faith, I should say. I have hope that it is going to turn on its heel a little bit. Um, but I still, you know, I, I think it's still just like media would have done at any time. Exploits are vulnerable. So I've got my cousins, and I'm hoping that none of them watch this. I don't think they will or listen. Well, my cousin's daughter is a model, and she's she's up to 100. When she was here a couple of years ago at Christmas, she was on a few thousand followers on Instagram, and now she's on a hundred and something thousand. She's absolutely stunning. But she shows her bottom and her tits too much, and actually, it really upsets me because she's an eighteen-year-old, and I worry because I think she's in. She's she grew up in in Australia, and she's now in LA, and I think she's so vulnerable. And actually, that's what I'm worried about. I'm worried about the fact that she's being exploited for her and and her vulnerability is. And I know that's an age-old thing that goes back centuries, but it still it still makes it far easier, doesn't it, when you've got
0: social media platforms i had ashley mears who is a social psychologist on the show and she studied the behavior of party girls in the vip clubbing scene in new york oh, really? Miami. she did ethnographic research yeah so she became a party girl for six months and followed <laughs> the biggest brilliant. she used to be a model when she was younger and now is a sociology professor like head of sociology at like new york state uni or so like real good and, um, she became a party girl and followed these girls around. And there's an interesting counter to, to the, um, they're being, they're vulnerable and they're being exploited because it's quite easy to say that you've got these girls who basically don't get paid. They just go out for free with the promoter and their filler and they go to the, the big tables with the guys who are spending all the money and they drink for free and they get free food before they go out, but it's not the best sushi. It's like the cucumber rolls and stuff like that. And she said to the girls, like, look, if you all banded together, you could firstly cut the promoter out and secondly, actually get paid for doing this rather than just getting stuff for free. And none of the girls wanted to do it. They knew that they were being exploited, but they said, well, it's just kind of fun. You know, it makes us feel special. I don't really want to be paid for it because it makes it feel like work. I would much just rather kind of come out and just have it for free and I'm with the girls. So there'll be a little bit of social conformity in there. But yeah. I also I also think that um, people like being made to feel wanted by Definitely. society and by, uh, so I wonder whether you would be able to even red pill your friend's daughter or cousin sufficiently. My cousin's daughter, yeah. yeah. Your cousin's so daughter. She, she related um, to me as well. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know whether you'd be able to red pill her enough for her to see that. I think that she might love the adoration that she gets so much, even if she was in full presence of all the facts that she'd be like, yeah. "Actually, do you know what it is? I prefer the likes. I prefer the free charcoal toothpaste and the whatever else you get on."
1: Well, then, and then there's the comfort, isn't there, of, of the life that you find yourself in. Whereas, like you said, she was saying, if you band together, well, that's that creates discomfort because you're then up against conflict straight away. And so, but it is. I mean, the model lifestyle is interesting, and um, but. In the book, in the book, I talk about prestige because what's interesting is um, and if we see someone doing something successfully from an evolutionary perspective, so say Fred went out and caught the antelope that we've been trying, the type of antelope we've been trying to catch for ages and we can't catch that antelope. So we go out with Fred and we go out a few times and then we learn how to catch that antelope and we come back to the village. And everyone's like, wow, you caught that antelope too. I want to be able to catch that antelope. But they can't distinguish between the rain dance that they did before you went out on the hunt or the song you sang when you came back from the hunt or the way you ran in circles from what you actually did. You take it as a total. You say, "Okay, I need to do all those things in order to catch that antelope. And that's how our brain sort of works. So we'll see a star advertising cologne and we think we don't sort of sit there and think well in reality he might wear that cologne but that doesn't mean that if I wore that cologne I would then be really attractive. All we see is actually globally speaking if I buy that cologne I might pull those girls as well and so it becomes this this sort of scenario which is where again the two million followers you think well they've got two million not you but people think well they've got two million followers um therefore I will do whatever they say and like whatever they say because they must know what they're talking about.
0: And they don't. Let me tell you from firsthand experience, those people haven't got a clue. It's interesting as well for me with the with the show as a really good example. We said that it's not often that you have objective measures of success, but I do with this, this show. I have objective measures of impact. How many subscribers, how many play minutes, how many views, how many messages, how many blah, 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 blah. Um, The show hasn't changed. We've been doing this about three years. This hasn't changed. Got a tiny little bit less shit at at interviewing people. (laughs) But like for the most part, it's just the same thing. I'm talking to the same people. But it's only now that we've reached about a million plays a month that people actually care and start referring to me as a host and think of me as some sort of authority. Oh, so much. It's just signaling. It's just that there is a trajectory that people can see the show's on, they think I'm some sort of authority at this now when I'm I'm just I'm swimming in imposter syndrome and
1: oh, all <laughs> all oh, my latest podcast, which goes out to about eighty people, um was <laughs> on imposter syndrome. Um I, I mean I come across imposter syndrome a lot, but what I also come across is hubris. Have you heard of hubris?
0: Can you explain it to me?
1: Yeah, so hubris is again it's one of these things that's contentious, but there's a guy called Lord David Owen who is a psychiatrist, um, but he studied basically leaders in the US and the UK over a hundred year period to see who had hubris. Now, hubris is when you tip from being potentially a good leader to starting to believe your own rhetoric. Um, So he uses the example of Tony Blair, and I don't want to get political, but um, Tony Blair, whether you agreed with his policies or not, he was a good leader, he was a good communicator. And he tipped into hubris. And I actually written a policy paper on the Chilcott report and pulled it apart from cognitive bias and all that sort of stuff. But he started believing what he wanted to believe rather than believing what was going on around him. And they say it's the only acquired personality syndrome. And it's, it's basically you become narcissistic. But I see it so often. And actually, I warn sometimes when I'm seeing people are just becoming CEO for the first time. I warn them and I say, one thing you've really got to watch out for is becoming hubristic. Because as soon as you become hubristic, you become a bad leader. But the problem is, in celebrity world, which I'm encountering more and more through stuff I'm doing, there's no one to say, actually, <laughs> you're a bad leader. We're, gonna, we're not going to hire you for the next role or we're not going to elect you. Well, who's, People keep, who's keep going following to be,
0: them. Who's going to be that person that decides to drop an anchor on the rocket ship that's going to the moon? What? That's precisely the same with with the show, with my other buddies that are like on upward trajectories. Um, No one gives a shit about what you think until you're successful, which is stupid because you think all of the things that you think now are... Exactly the same. Yeah, precisely. I have a friend, Michael Malice, and he had a book written about him that's called Ego and Hubris. Yes. Um, oh my
1: God! I've got such a long book list from I'm this sorry.
0: conversation. Um, I, I think that *Ego and Hubris* is the cheapest copy you can get now. It's about one hundred and fifty pounds. It's not available digitized. It's crazy. Have a look at the, the uh, things that he's been on Joe Rogan like five times. He's wonderful. How one of my he? one of my very very good friends, Michael. Um, let's get back to let's get back to mirror thinking before before we go. I love this quote that you had, which was "Teachers are the guardians of our mind when it is most malleable," which has got some really terrifying implications for choosing your kid's school and what they're being told by teachers really worrying?
1: It is really worrying, but um, there's also a lot of the research around role modeling shows that teachers have a very, very small impact on kids.
0: Okay, so what does teachers are the guardians of our mind when it's most malleable mean?
1: So when a teacher is bad, then, then you see it really having an impact, or when a teacher is exceptionally good. But most of the time, teachers through no fault of their own it's through I think it's through stress in the system they're not able to be exceptional so what I hear when I'm profiling people is I hear I more often hear for the bad teacher than I do of the good teacher so that's anecdotal but I'll hear someone say um this you know you know that." It's ridiculous, things like people who are CFOs of big companies have got a fear around their capability in maths, and you're like, what, why? It's because a maths teacher said something to them at one point that has stuck with them through life. That's what worries me, because there are lots of examples of where kids have been taken off track. And I think the ones I see are the ones who've made it in spite of that, but they've carried it with them anyway. But what about all those kids that then didn't even follow their dreams because they believed what that teacher told them?
0: The more and more that I learn, especially this year, this year's like the year of uncomfortable truths, probably for a lot of people, right? But like, particularly with the stuff I've been reading, Robert Plowman's stuff about the, the sort of this predetermination of genetics and, and then mirror thinking as well. It's like, hang on. So if you're telling me that I want to live a consciously designed life, I need to first overcome all of the shit that I did in life up until the point at which I start to step into my own programming. And then let's say that I managed to, to work my way through that. I've then got just the like source code that I'm made up of, the bootstrapped program that's kind of built into my genetics. And I've got to try. And yeah, in a society that's meritocratic, I think that's it's an uncomfortable truth.
1: It is. It is. And, and, and you know, the, the whole reason I wrote my first book, which is about just helping
0: publish the thing. Honest, oh, no, no, so.
1: no, 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 this is, that's my, so my, my very first book wasn't published. Okay. I mean, my first published book, which <laughs> okay, is the one right all cool. this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so, so my very first published book um was to try and democratize what i did with senior leaders because i i sort of go through the life and when i'm going through it i'm piecing together what their drivers are what their passions are what what their tipping points are how emotionally resilient they are how can they be more emotionally resilient all those sorts of things and then how can they optimize their behavior to help other people or to help themselves as leaders and so I, i broke it down into a book and i said i said to a friend of mine northern irish she lives in scotland and I was like, yeah, Jill, so I've done this and it's to democratize learning. So, like, other people that don't have these opportunities. And she went, she works with underprivileged, sort of a really rough area. And she's like, Fee, all due respect, they're not going to read your book. <laughs> and I was like, Ugh. for
0: fuck's sake. Should have, should have done a, an infomercial or something on YouTube or TikTok. Can you do a TikTok?
1: Well, oh, no, no, it's fine. I mean, I, I won two awards for that book, so it did fine. It's fine. TikTok
0: but, it. Double, double your sales, I bet. Oh, I
1: can't, I can't TikTok. Um, and then, and then um, but the reason I wrote this book was because I, I think there are things that we can actually take from it in terms of how we help kids from less privileged backgrounds.
0: So how can we use the mirror system to speed up our development? There's a lot of people listening who want to expedite their success and avoid failure. What are the the takeaways that people can use for self-development?
1: For people who are sitting watching this, I'm guessing they're not sort of stuck in a council flat somewhere. So there might be, might be, might be. And whoever it is listening, it's about being aware, so deciding what what do you want? Where do you want to go? Then being conscious of who is going to help you go in that direction and then making sure, and this sounds a bit weird, but it, you're exposed to those people. So, um, it, you know, if you want to, if, so say you are stuck in, in, in a really rubbish area, really run down, there's no one successful around you, you want to be successful read biographies, watch biographies on TV, think about what people are doing, watch them, observe them, see how they're doing things that mean that they have got to where you want to get to. Not the global prestige thing, but the individual behaviors. So, Martin um, Nelson Mandela, when he was in prison for those 27 years, he read biographies nonstop. He wrote letters to other leaders. He, he sort of examined history. It, All the information is there, but it takes effort to find it if we're not surrounded by it. If we're in a more lucky position and we are surrounded by it, make sure that if you want to be fitter, surround yourself by your fit friends. If you want to be a better communicator, listen to people who communicate well. But don't just listen. Think about how they communicate well. And so it's bringing everything into awareness, which is hard work. You don't want to do it all the time. So if you want a lazy way, you just surround yourself with people who you'd quite like to be like.
0: Is the you are the sum of the five people you spend the most time with? Is that true?
1: It's partially true, isn't it? But it's why you're attracted to people in the first place because they're like you, and then it reinforces how you are
0: such a confirmation or, bias that thing isn't
1: it yeah but then there's people like you who are really curious and you want to get underneath things and and so you're more likely to be surrounded by people who aren't necessarily like you um and that's no bad thing either because that stretches us beyond our our comfort zone and i and i'm really really power i think the power of curiosity is immense
0: you're among friends here, Fiona. its I said it on every podcast I've been on that's not been this one for like the last couple of years. Curiosity is the number one uh, personality trait for the 21st century um, because it, it, it sits outside of the confirmation bias. It's a desire to ask why, to look into things, um, which inevitably leads you down sometimes like catastrophe, but more often <laughs> than not just like interesting adventures, intellectually, physically, spiritually, whatever it might be.
1: Absolutely. And and if you meet someone who's not like you, if you sit there and you think they're not like me, and obviously we don't sit in pubs and things anymore, but when we used to you turn away. Or if you sit and you talk to them, firstly, you will find something that is like you in some way or another. But secondly, you can learn so much more about the world if someone's not like you. So how do they see the world? What do they find exciting and interesting? What can you learn from them? And then you can mirror that stuff if you want to.
0: And you can also make use, what was it, counter mirroring? Yeah. Yes. So you can also make use of a bad role model, bizarrely.
1: Absolutely. And actually, weirdly, it tends to have a bigger impact because people are more conscious of counter mirroring, of saying, I don't want to be like that. So with doctors, there's been a lot of research. You don't mention your friend who's a doctor. There's been a lot of research in role modelling for doctors. It's the only way that they think you can pass on empathic skills as a doctor, which is interesting. (laughs) There's also the fact that um, junior doctors that are with an unethical senior will either unwittingly take on some of that themselves and take that through their career or they will be so adverse to it that they go completely the other way, and they're like, I am completely ethical I'm following the ethics, I am doing everything by the book
0: The implications of our actions are so wide ranging it's really terrifying like the the fact that we're not in open rebellion against each other or getting hit by traffic <laughs> or you know like it it blows my mind because the number of different ways that your actions can affect other people positively, negatively. Um, it's just as well that we don't either have the capacity to or choose to uh, observe our thoughts and actions with the level of dexterity that we, we perhaps could. We would get nothing done. We'd just constantly be in inertia. Um, but yeah, it's um, It's mad. The tri- The butterfly effect of the things that we do is really crazy, isn't it?
1: It is. It's it's immense.
0: Fiona, this has been really cool. Mirror Thinking, How Role Models Make Us Human will be linked in the show notes below on Amazon. Anywhere else that you want people to go? Any other stuff they should check out?
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Why not follow me on Twitter and Instagram so I actually have some followers? That would be great. Great. Um, (laughs) um, What's your Twitter? What's your Instagram? Fiona Murden. Fiona Murden. Without a dot.
0: No dot. Yes, exactly. No
1: dot. Um, Fiona Murden. Fiona Murden. Fiona Murden on LinkedIn um facebook whatever but also i've got a podcast and i've been not not these amazing authors that you've been talking about but i've spoken to some brilliant people like um the ceo of dot martins who's a friend and editor-in-chief of mary claire and she talked about you know when she was she was doing that ethnographic research as a journalist with harvey weinstein and pretending to be a an actress Yeah, that's a really interesting one. You'd probably like that one. Shit, the bed.
0: What's what's your podcast called?
1: Dot to Dot Behind the Person. Pardon? Dot to Dot. So joining the dots on behavior. Dot dot to Dot dot dot,
0: Behind behind the the Person. I like that.
1: And so it's basically exploring people from what I do behind closed doors, but trying to give other people some some insight into that as well
0: but well, if that sounds interesting go and check it out fiona's podcast will be linked in the show notes below uh let me know what you think i think this there's a lot of implications i know we've been through quite a lot of different rabbit holes today but um comments below or drop me a message at chris Well x wherever you follow me but for now fiona thank you so much
1: thank you so much thanks a lot